Welcome back to our study of the book of Acts. Um, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, we're in the middle of chapter 11. Um, last time we met, we covered um, the latter part of chapter 10 um, through verse 18 of chapter 11. Um, and let me just, uh, while you're turning there to chapter 11, I'll remind you where we are in the book as a whole. So uh, since Stephen's martyrdom in chapter 7, we've seen the church scattered through persecution and then expanded both geographically and ethnically. Um, the gospel has punched through multiple cultural barriers in the past uh, four chapters, beginning with the Samaritans, acceptance of Jesus, and then culminating what we've studied the last two times together, the spirit falling on uncircumcised Gentiles in Caesarea. Uh, falling on Gentiles, just as it had fallen on Jews on the day of Pentecost. And uh, we talked about in chapters 10, or particularly in chapter 10, how God's independent action, um, God was acting uh, to direct people very specifically to make clear that these Gentiles are welcome among the people of God. The explicit supportive sign of the Spirit marks the Gospels appearing to the Gentiles as an epical, epical event. God directed it, not the twelve apostles. The expansion of the church beyond the Jews to the Gentiles wasn't the work of a particular person, but undisputedly God's work, as Peter's speech in the beginning of chapter 11 makes clear in its conclusion, and then the church's response. And this is... Uh, uh, Acts 11, um, uh, verses 17 and 18. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has rep granted repentance that leads to life. So, um, those events in chapter 10 that um, Peter reports back to the church in Jerusalem in the beginning part of uh, um, chapter 11 will be the, uh, again, a turning point. The focus increasingly, uh, not totally, but increasingly will shift away from events in and around Jerusalem and increasingly um, take place in other parts of the Greco-Roman world. Now today we'll see Jerusalem is still very much the center of the church, uh, or yeah, center of the church. Um, it's still the kind of ground zero, um, and we'll see uh, increased persecution once again in the beginning part of chapter 12. So my hope for this morning is that we'll take a look at the last part of chapter 11 and then um, chapter 12. So here now, the word of God. Um, beginning in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful, and faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea 
And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask him to bless it, uh, uh, bless it in our hearts and our minds as we discuss it this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your gospel, the good news that's gone out to all the world, starting in Jerusalem to Jews, but then spreading the Gentiles, that your church uh, will be drawn from all nations and all tongues. And we look forward to that great day when a mighty host will gather with you in triumphant celebration of the coming and establishment of your kingdom forevermore. And we thank you for how we see that kingdom growing here in these chapters. Uh, we see the works of, of men, but we more so we see your work through men, directing them by your spirit, uh, giving them hearts to believe, to turn to you in faith, and to faithfully proclaim your gospel, even if it means change, even if it means death. We know that you work all things for the good of your church, and you will continue to work 
for our good and your glory. Give us insight into uh, your word this morning as we study the life of these people who are first called Christians and help us to understand what it means to bear Christ's name in this way that we are known to others by his name and what that means for uh, how we should live and how we should speak. Give us your spirit. Guide us into all truth, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So chapter 11 started in Jerusalem, where the Christian community gathered to hear Peter's report of what was happening with Gentiles in Caesarea. And then chapter 12 uh, you know, goes back to Jerusalem, um, where we see James executed and then Peter arrested. But in between those two Jerusalem stories is the story of the church in Antioch. So why in the midst of you know, giving a history that's, that's been focused on things in Jerusalem, why does Luke pause to talk about what's going on in Antioch? Um, and we can kind of think like it, it draws attention structurally to this moment in Antioch. So what's happening in the church at Antioch that necessitates this um, shift away from events in Jerusalem? Okay, so just as we saw um, uh, in previous chapters where um, the Gentiles in Caesarea received the Spirit, so too um, in Antioch, uh, we have a gospel that first, and, and Luke is very clear, a gospel that was first being preached to Jews only in that place, suddenly started to be received by Hellenists, which could either mean Greek-speaking Jews or it can mean non-circumcised Greeks. It's the same word. So um, the ESV's done a little interpretation. They say Hellenists, but it could just be Greeks. Because now we know that the gospel is available to the uncircumcised as well as to the circumcised. Um, so yeah, so here you have um, this church in Antioch. Um, and just to give you a little context, Antioch is the third largest city in the Mediterranean world at this time. Some people put the estimate 600,000 people. Antioch is, it's, at this point, it's part of Syria northern Syria. Nowadays, it's, it's in Turkey. So if you think on the Syria-Turkey border, um, it's, 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 yeah, we've worked our way up almost to the elbow of where Turkey and Syria meet. Yeah, it's about, it was a little inland, but it was on a river that connected to the sea. Um, so it was a vital east-west trading port, which is part of the reason. And it's a it's a really cosmopolitan city. Um, uh, you know, Greeks, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, Indians, all inhabited this enormous city. So it's a very cosmopolitan place. Um, and very important um, economically as well as politically. Good. So, um, you know, to go back to the question, like, what, what's going on in, in this church in Antioch that makes Luke pause from his normal narrative um, about events in and around Jerusalem? Um, part of it is we see that work going to Gentiles, um, you know, that started in chapter 10. Now we're seeing it take place in other places. Um, and racing ahead, again, like, the way that Luke starts this section now those who were scattered because of the persecution. So again, going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 8 after Stephen's um, martyrdom, you know, the church is scattered. And so the seeds of Christianity have reached Antioch and are taking root there. And believers are pro proclaiming to their fellow Jews. And then they start to preach to, to Gentiles as well. What else? you say um, is noteworthy about this church in Antioch.
yeah, and think about that. Like, you know, um, here you have, you know, like as we talked about, you know, why is it so much attention being given to, um, you know, the first conversion of Gentiles? Because that cultural divide has been there. And we see that here you have, with the prophecy of this famine, these, you know, probably Greek-speaking, many Gentile Christians are giving of their selves as their resources to support a largely Jewish church in Jerusalem. So again, the reconciliation that's brought about by the gospel, like these, these divides between peoples that have existed prior to this moment are being done away with as they're becoming one community. And so Christians having concern and care for Christians in another place of a, you know, that they're not directly connected to. Yeah, so, you know, as we think of this church, like what a testimony that here you have these believers who at this point, we don't, you know, they haven't seen an apostle. Um, Paul, I guess, you know, is stepping into that apostolic role. But initially the church sends Barnabas there, not one of the, the 12. Um, and yet they have grasped the, the gospel you know, the phrase that Luke gives there, you know, um, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So that, you know, those two words, they turned and they believed, you know, that go together. Um, faith and repentance. Um, and in their faith and repentance, they, they're not just um, doing lip service to the gospel, but they're living the gospel through their deeds, through the giving of this gift. Yeah, it's a great aspect of it. Good, what else about this church in Antioch? So it's a church that combines Jewish and Gentile um, believers. It's a church that responds to the need created by this famine. Um, yeah, which hasn't happened yet, um, but it's going to be enormous. Um, we actually, you know, there are lots of things in this chapter that are attested to um, outside of, of Scripture. So, you know, with the, the mention of this took place in the days of Claudius, um, you know, we know from other records, hold on, let me get my years, um, famine hit in the first, second, fourth, ninth, and eleventh years of Claudius's reign. So um, much of his reign was defined by famine, and famine particularly struck Judea between 44 and 48 um, So AD. So, you know, it hasn't happened yet, <laughs> um, but the church is responding, like preparing. I mean, it's, there's almost a parallel to that story of Joseph, like, you know, receiving word that there are going to be seven years, lean years coming, so take advantage of the seven fat years. And so the church is responding to a potential um, disaster uh, ahead of time to make sure the church in Jerusalem is cared for even before the famine um, hits uh, in this way. Others? What strikes you about this church in Antioch? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, so, and the back and forth. So, you know, so, um, you know, you have the, the apostles, or actually it says elders in Jerusalem, so um, uh, presbyteros, presbyteros um, in, in Jerusalem, hear about what's happening in Antioch. So they send Barnabas to, to Antioch to, to minister there. And then the Antioch Christians, hearing from prophets who come from Jerusalem that a famine is going to hit, respond by giving gifts that they give to Paul or Saul and Barnabas, who then carry those gifts to Jerusalem and then come back to Antioch. Yeah, so as we move forward, um, you know, the center of activity 
is, uh, is shifting. Um, you know, as, as we see the gospel move north, um, and then it's going to start moving east and west. Um, again, trade routes. <laughs> they, um, I mean, yes, they are. They know that Jerusalem's end is in sight, but I, I think um, there, there doesn't seem to be like a rush to get out of Jerusalem because, as we'll see, they'll have their, when this controversy over Gentiles and the church and what does that mean for their, um, do they have to be circumcised? You know, do they have to adapt to other Jewish cultural customs? Like that discussion is going to take place in Jerusalem three chapters from now. So Jerusalem is still in many ways going to be the center. Yes, it's still the, you know, and, and notice the back and forth between Antioch and um, Jerusalem. But Antioch is going to be, um, I think maybe the way to think of it, there's going to be more than one center. <laughs> um, you know, that, that it, there's not going to be, um, you know, a, a, a hierarchy of places. Um, there, there's, the church is going to establish itself in important places all along the Mediterranean, and there are going to be other sending places. It's not just going to be Jerusalem's the one that's sending people out. You know, as we'll see, Antioch becomes a center, particularly for Paul and Barnabas' um, coming activity. Um, other things about this church in Antioch. Um, yes, Matthew. Yeah? Yeah, this is um, one one um, commentary I looked at described it almost as a chain, you know, a link chain. How you the first link was Peter, the second link is Paul, and they have this, you know, just like in a chain, they have this moment where they overlap and intertwine. Um, so Paul, yeah, is popping into the narrative here as the narrative is folks, you know, increasingly going to focus on him. We're not done with with. Peter yet, like we still have to complete like his part of the story in Acts, but um, increasingly the focus is going to shift to Paul, and I love how he's he's brought in to this work. Um, as you say, this is the first time we see him doing ministry, um, and he, he's he's responding or he's being brought in because of the need that's created. Um, you know, Barnabas is there, goes to Antioch. He's very faithful. He saw the grace of God. He was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful. Um, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And it's almost, it doesn't explicitly say this, but a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So it's like the church has grown beyond Barnabas's ability to to do ministry there, and so he needs help. And so he goes and he gets Saul, having had this, um, if you look back um, in chapter 9, um, when Saul went to Jerusalem, verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas has played this kind of key role in bringing um, Paul into the church. That, like, you know, when the church was distrustful of him, Barnabas stood up and spoke on his behalf. And when the church is growing in Antioch, Barnabas, recognizing his gifts, went and got him and brought him. And uh, again, that, he spends a year doing ministry there. I mean, we often think of Paul as being the, you know, 
the guy always on the move, like you know, the, the evangelist who never settles down. But he spent a year in this particular church doing ministry there before, in the coming chapters, as we'll see, he starts going out um, with Barnabas and Mark and others. Yeah, in a sense, um, Barnabas is the, the senior Christian of the two. And again, the description, it, it's not um, its not very frequent that Luke will pause and give us a description like he does for Barnabas. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Like he's emphasizing Barnabas's um, character, his Christian faith, his steadfast um, duty. Um, and this, I mean, so we've seen Barnabas a couple times. Um, went back when people were um, giving to the church, Barnabas is the one who sold his field, even though he was from Cyprus, sold his field and gave the proceeds to the church in Jerusalem. And then we see him again in that passage I just read where he reconciled the church to Saul's, um, to Saul's conversion and sort of helped bring about that. And now he's bringing Saul into here in a, a church that is noted, as we talked about earlier, like, you know, is noted for its um, willingness to give to people in other places. Um, maybe he needed to, sometimes people need convincing, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, face to face, um, yeah, they're not super far apart, so, you know, um, it, it wouldn't be an enormous journey. I mean, why would, I mean, if we're asking those kind of questions, both pastors are going to take this gift to, to Jerusalem, so, you know, um, Barnabas and, and Saul collect these funds or, or, yeah, the funds are given to them and they deliver them to Jerusalem and then come back. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, that would be have to be the kind of underlying tale. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons there's not the emphasis on the Spirit here is because um, we already know, you know, the Spirit's already confirmed that Gentiles can be converted. Like, you know, it's, we see that heavy presence of the Spirit at those breakthrough moments, um, like, and the, the need for an apostolic witness um, in place. Um, so here, yeah, it could be that Saul is serving as that apostolic witness. Um, notice also, uh, you know, some of it is the, um, there might be cultural considerations. Remember, Barnabas is from Cyprus. Um, notice here the church, uh, you know, has traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Um, men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch are the ones who started preaching to, um, to these Greeks. Uh, so, the church in Jerusalem hears it and they send Barnabas, a Cyprian, to go work there. And then he goes and gets, you know, Saul from Tarsus. Like, again, someone who is um, familiar with Greco-Roman culture and can operate in a place like Antioch. Um, so I think it's both cultural and apostolic for why Paul is being brought in to this church. Um, Anything else we want to say on Antioch? Uh, so we turn to Jerusalem. But, you know, an amazing moment um, where a church that's being established um, 
out, you know, way outside the bounds of Judea, yet is, you know, having received the gospel um, and has been soaking in its teachings, turn and send gifts back to Judea in advance of this coming famine. And as we shift to 12, we know that the, the problems the church in Jerusalem are facing aren't just in terms of this coming famine. Um, you know, there's, there's new trouble emerging in chapter 12 where we see the first uh, martyrdom of an apostle with the death of James. So, um, yeah, what, as we start into chapter 12, What's happening in Jerusalem? How have we gotten to this point where now um, we're not just imprisoning uh, Christian believers, but now we're, they're being executed by the state? So what's going, yeah. What's happening in Jerusalem? A movement? In what way? Um, yeah, I'm not sure that's the emphasis in chapter 12. Um, I mean, if we look in chapter 12, it seems more, um, it's more politics. You know, like Herod kills James, and when he saw the Jews liked it, oh, let's do Peter then. <laughs> let's take another one. Uh, um, you know, that, so it's, you know, the attention on is Herod is taking action that, um, that is popular with the Jews. Um, and Herod, this Herod, is well spoken of by Jews. Um, again, in extra biblical literature. If you look at Josephus, Josephus has like uh, an entire par paragraph listing the virtues of Herod Agrippa, like singing his praises up and down. Until he makes the speech, Josephus also records his blasphemous speech that gets him killed. Um, but, but, you know, prior to that, um, loves the guy. Um, and from Herod's perspective, he's going after the church because it's popular to do so. Um, popular among the Jews to do so. Um, and, you know, the last time we had uh, left the situation was very different. Um, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. So that church that's being established, at least the, the Jews there see it as a threat. And there's a movement among the Jews to eliminate it. But they can't execute people uh, legally. Um, so... You know, but once they have a politician in place who's willing to do their work for them, they're expecting him to do stuff. Yeah, but I mean, that's not what Luke's focused on. Um, their church there is growing. Um, and I mean, it's the earlier chapters where we see Luke emphasizing the growing divide between um, Christians and Jews. I mean, the stoning of Stephen. You know, that we see where the church has you know, made a nuisance of itself. Um, that's not his focus here. The focus here is on Herod and you know, political authorities giving the weight of the state to be more violent against the church, where you know, the Jewish authorities have been locking people up in jail. Now they have this um, you know, puppet, puppet monarch who is um, supporting their interests. Yes, 
Yeah, we're yeah we're ten, roughly ten years after. Again, right around forty four somewhere. You know, right on the cusp of about forty four A.D. Um, so, but you know, why now? Like, why is it now that we start having apostles killed? Um, and they're actively. It's very clear that they're intending to do to Peter almost mirror to what they did to Christ. Like they've imprisoned him during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and as soon as the Passover's done, they're going to you know, bring him before the crowd and execute him in a manner like that of, of Christ. So, you know, again, such a thing. But roughly 10 years after Christ was executed during Passover week, Peter faces the same thing. Um, and he's in jail, chained between two guys, with another, um, a squad is four soldiers, so four squads of four. So he's got 16 people guarding him. Um, you know, they're probably on a watch system, so they're probably not all on duty at the same time. But, you know, he, he seems like he's in a pretty, from the Roman perspective, he seems like he's in a pretty secure place. Um, but not so much for God. <laughs> Yeah, and again, Herod, um, from what we know about him, I, I'm being president, but Herod would be a great modern politician. Because when he goes and talks to the Romans, he's pro-Roman, and, <laughs> you know, he's, I'm your guy. And then when he goes and talks to the Jews, he's pro-Jewish, and, you know, I'm your guy. <laughs> like, uh, depending on what constituency he's dealing with, um, you know, he, he's very savvy and, 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 yeah, having these smooth, you know, wanting to have smooth relations with whoever he's dealing with. Um, and things start falling apart between the Romans and Jews after he dies. Um, his death is important in those Roman-Jewish relationships, right? which I think, you know, speaks to the point um, you're talking about, like, you know, these people have been difficult to govern, and now you have a guy there who knows them and is popular among them, and is seeking to please them, um, and yet he's going to die, um, you know, a fairly gruesome death, as we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you're the the structure, like the way it begins with Herod killing people and it ends with Herod being killed. Um, and the way that that Luke is emphasizing like his yeah, his grow, trying to um, to be more powerful than he really is and to proclaim himself as more than he is. And in the middle you see a god for whom Guards, not a problem. Prison gates, not a problem. <laughs> um, you know, if he wants to deliver someone, he will deliver them, regardless of what this king uh, dictates. Um, 
It's not Herod's will that rules what happens in Jerusalem. It's God's will. Um, yeah, absolutely. That, and the great thing about chapter 12 is, you know, all the irony that that Luke is employing here and the humor. I mean, I, I think it's, it's meant to have that element of, I mean, it's almost comedic. Like, um, first that, you know, Peter thinks he's in a, oh, this is a nice trance. Like, <laughs> boy, wouldn't it be great to just walk out and have the gates open in front of you? And then he gets outside and he's like, oh, that was real. <laughs> that really happened. And then he's at the gate knocking and, you know, the, the slave girl Rhoda hears his voice and she doesn't let him in. <laughs> and he, she goes and tells people and he's like, Peter's still there knocking. <laughs> Y'all gonna let me in? Like, um, yeah, the irony and the um, the amazing things that God's doing that uh, are unbelievable. Like, oh, it can't be Peter. It's got to be a ghost. I can't be walking out of this prison. It's got to be a vision or a dream or a trance or something. Like that, God's work is so amazing that people, when they first encounter it, can't even believe it's real um, and in, in a kind of comedic sense like they're you know denying reality until you know I mean again think you're think of all that's going through Peter's mind like it's it's the Passover like he's thinking of all those events that had happened 10 years ago when his uh, Lord and Savior uh, died on a cross for him, and that he had denied him three times, and now, you know, he could be executed, you know, in the exact same fashion, um, uh, at the exact same time of the year, and yet God acts to free him, to deliver him from chains, uh, to deliver him from soldiers, to deliver him from locked doors and iron bars. Um, to bring him to a Christian community that can't believe, when he's at the door, you know, knocking to get in, can't believe it's really him. Oh, it, it must be an angel, an angel, or a ghost, or something. <laughs> it can't be Peter. You're, you're crazy. Yeah. He's doing what the angels told him. Um, and remember, like, just two chapters ago, he had a pretty realistic vision three times of this sheep being lowered from heaven and him being commanded to take and eat. And he's like, no, I can't do that. I've never, you know, I've never touched something that's unclean or common. And, you know, I can't eat that stuff. Like, yeah, how, how intense those visions must be uh, to the extent he can't determine what's real. Um, this is uh, I, this is largely one of those kind of like coincidences of things I've been listening to. Um, but I've been listening to this book, 438 Days, about a fisherman who was swept out to sea in a 22-foot open boat um, from the coast of Mexico and he ended up in the Marshall Islands, um, you know, 438 days later. <laughs> um, and he, um, when he finally meets people, like he has such a hard time adjusting because he's been by himself. Um, he, he had a fellow fisherman who died after about 100 days. Um, and so he's been by, and he's been talking to himself, he's been talking to fish, um, he adopted a bird, before, before he had to eat it, <laughs> um, you know, um, and he's been imagining like he like the way he talks about it. Like I had like you know these great meals on board this. Like it's all in his head. Like great conversations. Um, like it, and so when he actually starts encountering other people, he's 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 having an enormous difficulty discerning. What's real, and is is this really happening, or am I still on the boat, making this up in my head? And like every day, he'd wake up thinking, "I'm still on the boat. I'm just imagining all this." 
approach. So kind of, I kind of was thinking of that in terms of Peter. Like, you know, here he is, like, he's had these visions sent by, by the Spirit. Angels have appeared before him. Um, yeah, he's having a little trouble discerning <laughs> real from the visionary. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I think you're you're at, and I'm glad you brought that point out. That's one of the things I wanted to emphasize. Like, yeah, they're praying for Peter. God acts. They're still praying. Like they're still in the act of praying, not knowing that God has already answered their prayer. Um and so when the answer to prayer comes, like <laughs> they have a hard time. <laughs> And I love how Peter comes in and he's like, you know, I, the way Luke describes it, like he's gesturing, huh? <laughs> silent, <laughs> lots of questions that will all be answered, like, but, you know, but, um, but yeah, it, it is the part, like, as we think about, you know, this body of believers gathered in this woman's home for the purpose of prayer, um, and, you know, it's not explicitly said in the middle, but it is that the church has been praying. Um, for Peter, so we can assume that they're, you know, that is a continued part of what they're doing on this Passover night. You know, like they know the timing of things. They know that Herod's probably just waiting for the feast to end, and then he's gonna, you know, as it says, um, you know, uh, as Peter says, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. And from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Like, there's this an expectation of Peter's end coming soon. So, like, um, yeah, imagine if, if we, and, and we've done this, like, prayed for Christians in other parts of the world. Like, sometimes there's this specific case of someone who's facing death in Iran. And you pray for that person. And, you know, we're praying for God to do something um, and, I mean, the equivalent would be praying for that and the guy walks in this room <laughs> while we're praying for him. That, I mean, that's the, like, we, we wouldn't believe that story because it's so amazing of what God's doing. Like, that God can answer prayers in ways beyond our rational understanding. Um, and their first thoughts, when they encounter Peter at the door is, oh, he's already dead, and, you know, he's, his angel um, is appearing before us. Like, you know, that's their first interpretation of, of this guy knocking on the door. Yeah, Put, pray, yeah. You know, it, it just says they're, they're praying, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We're not, we don't know what specifically they're asking for, um, but they're praying for him. Um, and notice, like, the last time we saw a prayer involved in persecution was Stephen's stoning, and he's saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. As we think about it, yeah, it's not a Peter versus them kind of prayer. Like they're praying, "Your will be done," you know, "Your kingdom go forth," "Your Your name be glorified," and God acts again in this amazing way that Peter can't believe it when it's happening to him, and they can't believe it when the you know the result of their prayer is knocking at the door. Like <laughs> um, it's God acts in such an amazing way to deliver, you know, Peter. And there are three of these. We saw one, um, you know, 
back in chapter 5, uh, or no, yeah, chapter 5, um, when uh, the apostles were arrested, they're put in jail, and then they go look for them, and they're back in the temple <laughs> doing the same things that they were doing when they were arrested. Um, it's going to happen again uh, later in the book. We'll have another one of these of God freeing his servants from, from prison. Um, but yeah, chains are no barrier to God's proclamation of the gospel. Uh, and that we'll see in Paul's life, chains can actually be a facilitation to gospel proclamation as he proclaims to the guards who he's chained to. Um, that this, this gospel can't be restrained by the hands of a wannabe king. Um, no, um, I think all we know is, is, is pretty much what Luke tells us, but he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and with the sword is kind of shorthand, you know, executed by the state. Um, so he, he's, he's killed in a judicial manner as opposed to how Stephen was killed by, like, you know, crowd lynching, um, to be killed with a sword is, in this context, was to be killed by the state. The same way we would say, like, even though we don't use swords anymore, like the government has the power of the sword. Um, like we still kind of use that that idiom. So specifically, how he dies, um, no, we don't have. I mean, there are other um, reports talking about, you know, his death and that you know, confirming that it was Herod that killed him. Um, and we know how um, the other James, um, there are some other details about how the other James, who would be martyred um, roughly around 62, um, he was actually killed by Annas II, the high priest, in an unlawful action that actually had the Romans step in and remove him from his position because he, he didn't have the power of the sword. Um, so... Um, only Rome has that authority to take somebody's life. And that's what Luke's emphasizing here. You know, it's a judicial Roman seal of approval execution of James. Yes. in the ways we want them. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm so glad you, you brought that story out, Landon, because um, when we looked at the, the prior time where the apostles are freed from prison, you know, it's only two cha chapters later that Stephen's killed. Like, there's almost a pairing of, like, sometimes, you know, God wants the person freed from prison, so God's will is done in an amazing way. And then sometimes it's God's will that the person um, give his or her life for the faith, and God does amazing things through that. I mean, again, he's not going into the details about James's death, but, you know, what has been the story about Stephen's death? Like, he died. Did he die in vain? No. <laughs> the church has grown because of Stephen's death, even how our section in chapter 11, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, like his death led to a dispersal of the church that ironically spread the gospel. And so this attempt to kill the church by killing its leaders is, is going to be a doomed strategy. Um, and God can work to grow his church even when an apostle dies, 
or by freeing apostles. Um, but but God's will be done, and we have to be just as you said, you know, not going in with a set ex set of expectations. We go in, Thy will be done, right? And God is going to work in ways beyond our understanding, um, and you see that clearly illustrated with Peter. Um, he's doing that with the death of James as well, and maybe we, you know, maybe Luke doesn't talk about that because. That's not as visible to him, but it's clearly visible how God worked through the death of Stephen and worked that for the good of the church. Um, you know, God can take an evil action and use it for good purposes. That doesn't diminish the evil action for us and our experience. Like we were still and respond to it as evil, just as the church mourned Stephen. Um, but God can use man's evil actions to accomplish his good purposes because he is the sovereign one. And he's doing things for the good of the church. Uh, I'm so glad you you brought that verse forward because, yeah, that James, uh, you know, they don't know what they're asking for at that moment. (laughs) Again, sort of think prayer. Uh, Hey, Lord, (laughs) yeah, you know, you're going to, you just don't know. (laughs) Um, You know, he's asking for something. But then, uh, you know, one of the themes in 11 and 12 is faithfulness. Um, You know, this church in Antioch, is encouraged by Barnabas to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You know, Barnabas is steadfast in faith. Um, The people of Antioch respond in faith to this prophecy to give gifts. When James is killed and Peter's imprisoned, the church responds faithfully by upholding those men in prayer. Not using it as, you know, again, the... As we saw earlier, there's an idea among the Jewish leaders that you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And the shepherd, you know, one of the shepherds of this Jerusalem church has been struck down and another is about to be struck down and the sheep haven't scattered, but they've faithfully gathered together in prayer. Um, And God is doing uh, great things through that faithfulness of his people. He's working through the faithful um, acts of his church in Antioch and in Jerusalem. All right, well, we're at time, so let me uh, close us in prayer. Gracious God, you are so good to us, so gracious to us, that you do hear and answer our prayers, not always in the ways that we expect, and maybe not always in the ways we want, but you are working all things for the good of those who love you. You're working all things for the good and growth of your church. Help us to be faithful and steadfast in our trust in you, Um, the one who we know can do things um, more amazing uh, to a far greater degree than we could even imagine or believe. Help us to to trust in your sovereign hand when we pray and we get the results of our prayer and and even when we pray and the thing that we desire doesn't come to pass, that in both situations you are the good God of heaven and earth directing all things for your wise purposes. Help us to have that kind of steadfast faith. And it's that kind of faith that the world sees um, and takes note of, that steadfastness of belief that causes people to be known by your name. We 
Reuben as we see these um, believers in Antioch for the first time being openly called Christians, um, openly identified with their Lord and Savior in name. Help us to have that kind of belief that works its way out in action that others can see and know you, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through us as we uh, bear your name and bring your gospel to the world around us. Help us um, praise that name as we gather together through your spirit to worship you in spirit and truth in this coming hour. And we ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.